Episode 19. Greetings and welcome into the Patuxent General. I am your host, Jess, and this week we celebrate Rhode Island with a traditional combo, the Bloody Mary and the Rocky Point Clam Bake. Then we round things out with a continued reading of the case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft. But first, I would like to thank our Patreon subscribers. You fabulous people keep the lights on here at the General, so thank you. And if you would like to join our merry group, there is a link in the show notes to the Patreon page, and it couldn't be easier. So, let's start here with a little poem. The smell of lightning on the air marks excitement through our town. Fresh loom and daffodils. Here in Rhode Island, we are called the Ocean State, and for good reason. Beach fun and food drive our state during the summer season, and in the off-season, the locals take over. Every menu near the beach has a special Bloody Mary. They may all have different tweaks, but for the most part, this is what we like. On the ferry to Block Island, or Point Judith's restaurant views, how about the beach itself? My favorite is with a clam bake. Here is my version of a Rhode Island Bloody Mary. Enjoy. You will need a good mixing vodka. Recently, I've been tasting a fabulous Ukrainian vodka. It's just lovely. Ask at your local liquor store for their selection of Ukrainian vodka, and I'm sure you won't regret it. Let's make a pitcher so that you can share it with your clam bake pals. So, you will need two cups vodka, frozen. It doesn't actually freeze. It just gets really honking cold. So... Two quarts tomato juice. Hardcore Rhode Islanders use Clamato, a clam tomato juice, chilled well. Four or five tablespoons of prepared horseradish. Two tablespoons Worcestershire sauce. Two tablespoons hot sauce, or more if you like it spicy. Celery salt and pepper to taste. And three juiced limes. Combine all ingredients in a good-sized pitcher, mix, and keep chilled until use. It can be made hours before if needed. Well, if you can trust yourself not to taste test through the pitcher. Now let's talk about garnishes, the real star of the party. Four slices thick-cut bacon, cooked crispy. It's going to have to stand up in the glass. Eight jumbo shrimp, steamed and chilled. One jar manzilla olives. One lime, quartered. One lemon, quartered. Four ribs of celery, washed with their strings removed. You will also require a sturdy skewer for each glass. This recipe is based on four. So, each glass will have a skewer holding two shrimp, two olives, one lime wedge, one lemon wedge. With one slice of bacon and one rib of celery stuck right in. This ought to give you enough strength to make a clam bake. Enjoy! It seems to me that growing up in Rhode Island, the clam bake is at the center of most summer gatherings. All of us know how to make them, but it's the memory of the childhood bakes made for us that stick with us. For me, twice a season, my whole family would go to Rocky Point Park Shore Dinner Hall. This was a whole afternoon event. You entered this long, one-level building overlooking the pier at Rocky Point. Windows covered three of the four walls for a fantastic view. 
Long tables made for family seating put you right next to folks you've never met before. We would share Manhattan clam chowder and clam cakes passed up and down the table. You could order your dinner with or without steamed lobsters. We always got with. After chowder, we would get sweet corn, steamed clams and quahogs, sweet Italian sausages, potatoes, and the lobsters, all cooked together and served in large stainless terrines. Our heavy stoneware plates came to us heated. And after the shells and the empty terrines were collected, we passed watermelon, plus coffee for the adults and soda for the children. By the time we left, dusk would be upon us and the park lights would be on, calling us in for a quick ride before going home exhausted. Summer in Rhode Island. So let's capture that feeling with an at-home or backyard version. You will need a very large pot. My grandmother used her canning pot. You will also need seaweed. It is integral to the taste. You can harvest this in the wild or purchase local kelp like sea lettuce, Irish moss, and sugar kelp. Locally, there are companies out of Point Judith and Block Island. Overseas, you could substitute dried nori. The only other regional ingredient is Old Bay seasoning. In Rhode Island, this is sold anywhere you can buy fish. However, you can also buy it online. There is also a homemade recipe but it is only a shadow of the actual seasoning. I suggest the original. Now, there are three ways to do this. Two are on the beach and one is on the stovetop. I have done all three methods and feel that they all work well, but on the beach cooking lends itself to a singular experience. There is something about digging a hole in the sand in the afternoon and baking it with hot coals from the wood fire. I spoke to my dad recently about this, and he said you need a quart of wood for every clam bake. To enhance the flavor, we topped the sealed pot with seaweed and then bury it for an hour. In New England, you can buy a clam bake in an aluminum bake pan, which can be wrapped in seaweed and parchment and then buried as well. Most fish stores carry them. Our pot version can be sealed and buried in the sand, but more coals are called for. The seasoning is the same, but let's do ours in the off-season on the stove. Or if you're inland and don't have a seafront sand to bake in. I can smell it already, so let's go. It is based for two, but this is a good amount of food, so keep in mind a seafood pie for the next day with leftovers. Hmm. Hmm. Perhaps a recipe for next week. Clams and quahogs need to macerate to get excess sand. This is done by putting shellfish in a fresh, cold, non-chlorinated water with salt, pepper, and cornmeal or breadcrumbs. They suck in the seasoning and spit out the sand, making them perfect to put in any recipe. So, you will need two chicken or small lobsters, a pound and a half each or so, four quahogs, quahogs. Do not say quahog, that's not a thing. Eight clams, two local sausages, sweet or hot, depending on your taste. I like it hot. Although dad told me that they usually put hot dogs in. There's a local hot dog named Soggy, and that was usually what was used when my dad was a boy. Two large white onions, skinned and cut in half. Six cloves of garlic, skinned. Two sweet corn on the cob, shucked. Two potatoes. Seaweed, 
your choice to seal the steam. One bay leaf, one tablespoon Old Bay seasoning. One stick of salted butter melted for dipping. Two tablespoons cornmeal or breadcrumbs. Salt and pepper. One bottle of white wine or a quart of chicken stock or water. One lemon and one bunch parsley. Now, the layering is very important. You want to put the longest cooking items at the bottom and work your way up. So put the onions flat side down first. If anything is going to brown or overcook, it's the onions, and that only makes this sweeter. Then potatoes to sop up all that goodness that is in the broth. Then sausages. Then quahogs, garlic, bay seasoning, bay leaves, and half a dozen peppercorns. At this point, add the lobsters, clams, and sweet corn. Pour wine, stock, or water one-third of the way up the pot, and then cover with seaweed. Bring to a boil, turn down the heat, and simmer until the tiny feeler legs gently pull off the lobster. As Julia says, it's the cook's right to get to suck out the tender leg meats to check for doneness. About 14 minutes. Remove onto platters, strain liquid gently, looking out for sand at the bottom. Serve liquid in one dish and melted butter in the other to dip shellfish. Fresh parsley and lemon should garnish the plate. They both add so much to the dish. Hurry up, dive in with a Bloody Mary and enjoy. I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his electromagnetic pinball museum and restoration arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. And now for our House on the Corner series, the continued reading, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft. Chapter 3, Act 2. Young Ward came home in a state of pleasant excitement and spent the following Saturday in a long and exhaustive study of the house on Olney Court. The place, now crumbling with age, had never been a mansion, but was a modest two-and-a-half-story wooden townhouse of the familiar Providence colonial type, with a plain-peaked roof, large central chimney, an artistically carved doorway with fade fanlight, triangular pediment, and trim Doric pilasters. It had suffered a little alteration externally, and Ward felt he was gazing upon something very close to the sinister matters of his quest. The present inhabitants were known to him, and he was very courteously shown about the interior by old Asa and his wife Hannah. Here, there was more change than the outside indicated, and Ward saw with regret that fully half of the fine scroll and urn overmantels and shell-carved cover linings were gone. Whilst much of the fine wainscoting and bolection molding was marked, hacked, or gouged, or covered up altogether with cheap wallpaper. In general, the survey did not yield as much as Ward had somehow expected, but it was at least exciting to stand. It was at least exciting to stand the ancestral walls which had housed such a man of horror as Joseph Carwin. 
But it was at least exciting. But it was at least exciting to stand within the ancestral walls which had housed such a man of horror as Joseph Kerwin. He saw with a thrill that the monogram had been very carefully effaced from the ancient brass knocker. From then on, until the close of school, Ward spent his time on the photostatic copy of the Hutchinson cipher and accumulation of local Kerwin data. The former proved unyielding, but of the latter, he obtained so much and so many clues to similar data elsewhere that he was ready by July to make a trip to New London and New York to consult old letters whose presence in those places were indicated. This trip was very fruitful for it brought him the Fenner letters with the terrible description of the Patuxet farmhouse raid and the Nightingale Talbot letters, in which he learned of the portrait painted on the panel in the Corwin Library. This matter of the portrait interested him particularly, since he would have given much to know just what Joseph Kerwin looked like, and he decided to make a second search of the house on Only Court to see if there might not be some trace of ancient features beneath peeling coats of ladder paint or layers of moldy wallpaper. Early in August, that search took place, and Ward went carefully over the walls of every room sizable enough to have been any possibility the library of the evil builder. He paid especial attention to the large panels of such overmantles as still remained. He paid especial attention to the large panels of such overmantles as still remained, and was keenly excited after about an hour, when a broad area above the fireplace in the spacious ground room floor, he became certain that the surface brought out by the peeling of several coats of paint was sensibly darker than any ordinary interior paint or the wood beneath it is likely to have been. A few more careful tests with a thin knife, and he knew he had come upon an oil portrait of some great extent. A few more careful tests with a thin knife, and he knew that he had come upon an oil portrait of great extent. With truly scholarly restraint, the youth did not risk the damage which an immediate attempt to uncover the hidden picture with a knife might have done, but just retired from the scene of his discovery to enlist expert help. In three days, he returned with an artist of long experience, Mr. Walter C. Dwight, whose studio is near the foot of College Hill, and that accomplished restorer of paintings set to work at once with proper methods and chemical substances. Old Asa and his wife were duly excited over their strange visitors, and were properly reimbursed for this invasion of their domestic hearth. As day by day the work of restoration progressed, Charles Ward looked on with growing interest at the lines and shades gradually unveiled after their long oblivion. Hence, since the picture was a three-quarter length one, the face did not come out for some time. It is meanwhile seen that the subject was a spare, well-shaped man with a dark blue coat, embroidered waistcoat, black satin small clothes, and white silk stockings, seated upon a carved chair against the background of a window with wharves and ships beyond. When the head came out, it was observed to bear a neat abermile wig and to possess a thin, calm, undistinguished face, which seemed somehow familiar to both Ward and to the artist. Only at the very last, though, did the restorer and his client 
begin to grasp with astonishment at the details of the lean, pallid visage, and to recognize with a touch of awe the dramatic trick which heredity had played. For it took the final bath of oil and the final stroke of the delicate scraper to bring out fully the expression which centuries had hidden, and to confront the bewildered Charles Dexter Ward, dweller in the past, with his own living features in the countenance of his horrible great-great-great-grandfather. Ward took his parents to see the marvel he had uncovered, and his father at once determined to purchase the picture, despite its execution on stationary paneling. The resemblance to the boy, despite an appearance of rather greater age, was marvelous, and it could be seen through some trick of avatism. The physical contours of Joseph Kerwin had found precise duplication after a century and a half. Mrs. Ward's resemblance to her ancestor was not at all marked, though she could recall relatives who had some of the facial characteristics shared by her son and by the bygone Kerwin. She did not relish the discovery and told her husband that he had better burn the picture instead of bringing it home. There was, she averred, something unwholesome about it, not only intrinsically, but in its very resemblance to Charles. Mr. Ward, however, was a practical man of power and affairs, a cotton manufacturer with extensive mills at River Point in the Patuxet Valley, and not one to listen to feminine scruples. The picture impressed him mightily with its likeness to his son, and he believed the boy deserved a present. In this opinion, needless to say, Charles most heartily concurred. And a few days later, Mr. Ward located the owner of the house and obtained the whole mantle and overmantle bearing the picture at a curtly fixed price, which cut short the impending torrent of unctuous haggling. It now remained to take off the paneling and remove it to the Ward home, where provisions were made for its thorough restoration and installation with an electric mock fireplace and Charles' third floor study or library. To Charles was left the task of superintending this removal, and on the 28th of August, he accompanied two expert workmen from the Crooker Decorating Firm to the house on Olney Court, where the mantle and the portrait-bearing overmantle were detached with great care and precision for the transportation in the company's motor truck. There was left space of exposed brickwork marking the chimney's course, and in this, young Ward observed a cubical recess about a foot square, which must have lain directly behind the head of the portrait. Curious as to what such a space might mean or contain, the youth approached and looked within. Finding beneath the deep coatings of dust and soot, some loose yellowed papers, a crude thick copybook, and a few moldering textile shreds, which may have formed the ribbon binding the rest together. Blowing away the bulk of the dirt and cinders, he took up the book and looked at the bold inscription on its cover. It was in a hand which he had learned to recognize at the Essex Institute, and proclaimed the volume as the journal and notes of Jost, Kerwin Gentleman of Providence Plantations late of Salem. Excited beyond measure by this discovery, Ward showed the book to the two curious workmen beside him. Their testimony was absolute as to the nature and genuineness of the finding, and Dr. Willette relies on them to help establish his theory that the youth was not mad when he began his major eccentricities. All the other papers were likewise in Kerwin's handwriting, 
and one of them seemed especially portentous because of the inscription, To him who shall come after, and how he may get beyond time and ye spheres. Another was in a cipher, the same Ward hoped, as the Hutchinson cipher which had hitherto baffled him. A third, and here the searcher rejoiced, seemed to be a key to the cipher. Whilst the fourth and fifth were addressed respectively to Edward Hutchinson Armiger and Jedediah Orne Esquire, or their heir or heirs are those representing them. The sixth and last was inscribed, Joseph Kerwin, his life and travels between the years 1678 and 1687, of whether he voyaged, where he stayed, whom he saw, and what he learnt. We have now reached the point from which the more academic schools of alienists date Charles Ward's madness. Thank you again for joining us at the PG. If you would like to contact us for booking a demonstration, questions or comments about the podcast, recipe, or perhaps a ghost story, our email is jess at patuxetgeneral.com. We can't wait to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I'll meet you back here next week at the Patuxet General. A Something for Posterity production. Pre-recorded in Patuxet.